Welcome to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast, hosted by lead pastors Cassie and Alex Barron. Midtown Church exists to reveal the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. This podcast explores ways in which we can become more like Jesus, reveal the places he is already working, and ultimately renew the reputation of the local church. Hey, everybody. This is Cassie and Alex Farron. Hey, everyone. Coming to you from our apartment. Maybe one of these days we'll get some sort of fancy podcast studio. But That'd be awesome. Probably not for a while. Nope. Until then, we will continue to record from our apartment. I am super excited to uh, talk a little bit today about the crucifixion of Jesus. So we are airing this fun bonus episode. Bonus, bonus, bonus. I don't know. I felt like... Uh, that didn't work, but it's supposed to be like fun. <laughs> Alex is uh, laughing at me, everyone. Um, but we wanted to air this fun little bonus episode on Good Friday, which obviously in the Christian calendar focuses on the death of Jesus, crucifixion of Jesus before he then is resurrected on Easter Sunday. And so um, that being said, we're going to take a little bit of a different twist on it. Um, we're not necessarily going to preach like a Good Friday sermon or maybe even reflect on how to celebrate Good Friday. We obviously will do that as we continue to grow as a church. I see us maybe even doing that next Easter, hosting a Good Friday service. But today, we actually wanted to talk a little bit about the political nature of the crucifixion. Mm. So something that... I don't know if you noticed this a lot last year, Alex, but I did. In 2020, there were a lot of people in church culture talking about how they were apolitical, Mm. which I understand the sentiment. And in no way am I shaming those individuals. I, I totally get the sentiment there. But the problem with that statement is that if you read, know, and understand the Bible and the person of Jesus, you actually find that politics was like very integral and played a really big role in how the gospel story was written and how Jesus really affronted the powers of his day. And so very much the story of Jesus and the Bible are political. And the way in which that plays itself out in a really powerful and extraordinary manner. We can actually find that in the story of the crucifixion in Mark. So we're going to talk a little bit first. We want to set up the conversation by talking a little bit about uh, why the Bible, why the story of Jesus is actually very political. And then we're going to launch in and talk a little bit about the crucifixion and and how those two things kind of play into one another. So as we begin this, I think maybe a caveat to that is um, the way we understand politics in you know, our current moment, it's very partisan. And so what we're advocating, yeah, what we're, what I'm suggesting, what we're suggesting is that while Jesus was political, anytime you say, love your neighbor as yourself, anytime you say, love your enemy, those are political statements. Jesus was political. He had a lot to say about how we as people organize ourselves, but Jesus wasn't partisan. No. And that's, I think, when we hear he wasn't political, aware of American politics. When, when we century. hear when we hear political, we hear 
partisan loyalties we hear i am strongly aligned with the left or the right and so we're not saying jesus is aligned heavily with the left or the right actually i I think as we'll go jesus critiques both the left and the right um significantly and so maybe that caveat's helpful in defining that when we say politics we are not saying partisanship i mean i think some people may wonder then okay well then why even use the word politics when talking about jesus if it like in this day and age has so many weird undertones to it i think it's still really important to use the word politic when talking about jesus because we have to look at the politics of this world and then we actually have to compare them then to the politics of Jesus. And then our world, our understanding of the politics of the world is therefore transformed by our understanding of the politics of Jesus. So that is why like the distinction is really important because although Jesus, you know, wasn't democratic, Republican, left, right, like, well, even, partisan, even like, oh, those, wasn't those things. Those categories aren't even helpful yeah, in talking about they're Jesus. They're not, even though like they didn't have anything to do with like those th- categories didn't have much to do with who like Jesus was and who he is to us today. Um, they very much help us like Jesus's life and the politic of Jesus helps inform then our politics mm-hmm. of the, mm-hmm. of this day. And that's why it really is important to highlight both. And then be able to compare both because I think we can find some pretty extraordinary truths when we do that. So, yes, that's good. Alex, explain to us a little bit about um, why the Bible and the story of Jesus is political as we begin this conversation. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, anytime you talk about love for neighbor, you talk about how you organize people and society, it's it's a political conversation. And I think... With the the pop, rising popularity of scholars like N.T. Wright, who emphasizes the subversive tones of the gospel narratives and the Jesus story, we, we've kind of begun to unpack how the gospel in itself, the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, has subversive undertones. Um, this is to say that the gospel writers often organized the Jesus story in such a way that it shamed the Roman Empire, the empire of the time. Um, Helpful example, Cassie knows this, and I'm about to out myself. I love comics. In particular, (laughs) my favorite comic is the X-Men. He reads them every night. Every night. That's like my ritual, my routine. (laughs) I read comics before bed because... You know, not paper ones, though. Not paper. Less people think you're too nerdy. It's on your iPad. It's, it's called Marvel's Unlimited Subscription. Yeah. Whatever. Shout out to yeah, Marvel. Plugging Unlimited. Marvel. It's anyway. It's like six bucks a month if you do the yearly. No, I'm just kidding. One of the things one of the things I love about the X-Men is that the X-Men offer this political critique written by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in the nineteen sixties. I think it debuted in sixty three kind of right at the height of the civil rights movement. And so you have this story about humans that have a a different gene that gives them a unique ability or a unique power. Mutants. And so this story is about these mutants who are seeking to to add good to the world, to save their neighbor, to, to combat the powers of evil. But the twist on this is that they are hated by humanity. Partly because there are some good mutants and some bad mutants. They're good mutants, and bad the mutants. Bag eggs, bad eggs usually 
yeah trump so what yeah. what's what's so interesting about this is it offers this picture into the way things were were happening in the 1960s you're talking about the height of the civil rights movement and um and and the white america discriminating against yeah. all people of color regardless of that person's character regardless of that person's decision they were just discriminated period and so the x-men this fictional story offers a critique of the u.s's politics and though the x-men were a fictional story and we firmly hold to a historical reality of Jesus's resurrection, the way in which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus, they organize it in such a way that the Roman Empire is shamed. Yeah. We and just don't always realize we that don't, in because, our Yeah, because yeah. we're 2,000 years removed, yeah. we don't see the kind of nuance or the s- subtle digs at the Roman Empire in the same way that first century audience would have. Yeah. No, that's so good. I think um, something that often, uh, like one example of that, that often kind of blows my mind a little bit, and Mark, when you see um, Mark kind of describing Jesus's, um, what a lot of people interpret to be like the end of times kind of portion of Mark, uh, that reigns very similar to like the the genre of Revelation. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times we misappropriate what Jesus is talking about in that story and Mark to end of times as we know it in like our context. When in reality, scholars have have been able to pretty much like see and prove through some of those subtle digs that you were talking about that a lot of what he was talking about was actually the fall of the Roman Empire there. So I'm not in any way saying that like the end of times doesn't exist or we won't whatever, whatever. I think that's like a whole nother episode that we could do a whole nother several episodes that we can do. But I am specifically referring to that passage in Mark and saying that there are just like a a few subtle little things that we don't always quite pick up on because again, we're not situated in their cultural moment. Right. And so it's almost like, you know, Alex, we don't necessarily know everything that's happening. Like we vaguely know like all the politics and the things that are happening, the disasters are happening in Syria. But unless we were like really truly living there, we don't know what those people are going through. We don't fully understand like they're the leaders that are in power, local, you know, level, what, what their day to day life looks. We don't have that particular dispensation and so for us to then try to understand you know like a a a work of art or a poem from a a syrian refugee we not only have to understand the language but we also have to understand their cultural moment and so again it's kind of this understanding that you know, as people in 21st century, we have to learn some of these subtle things, some of these subtle digs. We have to understand, we have to immerse ourselves in the culture of the person living under Roman rule. And then we have to interpret the Bible through that lens to then help us understand how we can interpret the Bible in our own context. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's kind of cool to think about. It's very cool. Yeah. It's, it, and it brings such a, a nuance and a strangeness to the text. Yeah. Um, to be once again reminded that, you know, I, I can't just come to it with, with zero understanding of its his history. The, the authors were steeped. Well, even a vague understanding. Of, of, yeah, yeah. You can't come to it with 
no under a vague understanding because the authors were steeped in their culture yeah. in their historical moment and that overflows in the way that they write it, it tints the way that they tell the story yeah. and I think that's important to understand um, not to get rid of that historical context so that we can you know find some kind of truth but help interpret and bring it to life for what it means now yeah no that's really good I like that um, with that being said, let's launch a little bit into the crucifixion story and um, maybe we can kind of explain how this crucifixion story is another one of those examples. Like I gave the example yeah. of, you know, the end times and Mark and the fall of the Roman Empire. But the crucifixion story, as accounted by Mark, very much illustrates the political nature and some of those undertones that we're talking about. So why yeah. don't you walk us through that a little bit? Um, I think it's kind of cool to be able to reflect on that crucifixion story as we're, you know, headed into Good Friday. Yeah, as, as we're beginning to think about Easter and the death of Christ on a cross, um, Mark particular organizes Jesus's crucifixion in a fashion that's unmistakably similar to what is called the Roman triumphal procession. So it was this ceremony, it was this parade that began as a, a as a parade to the Greek gods and it was eventually shifted to conquering Roman generals. Mm. So these Roman generals would be celebrated. It would happen in the, the, the capital cities. And um, as they came back celebrating victory, they would parade the conquered enemy behind them in mockery, mockery and cruelty, leading them to public ex- executions. And uh, what was interesting is prior to 20 BC, these parades happened more and more often. And so it kind of became this going back and forth between Roman generals to see who could have the most elaborate, gaudy, and excessive procession. Mm -hmm. It just became one one one-umping after another. And so by 20 BC, so just before the birth of Christ, Roman emperors put a stop to um, their generals being able to lead the triumphal because um, the generals were getting so much fame from this moment. And so the emperors... That's a threat. It was a threat. And so the emperor said, I'm the only person who can lead um, this procession. And so by about 20 BC, it became this pseudo-religious and political ceremony that was the crowning of a man who would claim to be deity. So the Roman emperors began to have more and more symbolism that suggested it was not just the crowning of them as emperor, but it was also the crowning of them as God. Mm. And so even in, in that, you begin to kind of think about Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus. It all of a sudden starts to kind of set in what Mark might be doing and And what Jesus might be doing. Like it was not a mistake. Like Jesus knew like he wasn't like oh i didn't realize they would interpret it that way no 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 no. he knew jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he had a triumphal entry yeah so really the mark's triumphal procession really begins in 15 or fifth chapter 15 verses 16 through 32 and um the reason why you know we're looking at mark in particular because mark was known and as you read it is known for its brevity yeah Everywhere there's this immediately. immediately. Yeah. Jinx. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in every point in Mark, he's he wants to move the narrative along really quickly. However, when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ, Mark seems to linger on seemingly less than relevant details. And 
in part, I believe it's to set up Jesus's crucifixion against the Roman triumphal. So, like, in the details of, of Mark's telling, there are these allusions to the triumphal procession that Mark is co-opting, if you will, mm-hmm. to tell of Jesus' death. So, specifically, in, in chapter 16, Mark is specific that the whole battalion, which would have been about 200 soldiers, are present at Jesus' triumphal entry. Not his entry, but in the crucifixion. crucifixion, So this is kind of between Pilate saying, handing him over to the guards to be beaten. And then so from that moment to his his death on the cross is kind of the triumphal procession we're focusing in on. And so what's bizarre about that is why would 200 guards be needed to walk a singular man to his death? Ten, like 10 men is excessive and yet mark is is emphasizing that similar to the triumphal procession which as the emperor you have a this massive gathering of soldiers to declare your power likewise there's this gathering of all the available soldiers to walk with the crucified one i also think it highlights uh just how much of a threat Jesus was perceived to be by the Roman Empire. So like what we have to understand here is like you can say Jesus was apolitical all you want to, except for the political powers of his day were so threatened by him. Jesus wasn't (laughs) murdered because he said, love your enemy. He was he was murdered because they thought that he was going to literally take over the Roman Empire. And so the reason why there are 200 battalion there is they were that threatened. His message was so antithetical to the powers of his day that they were that threatened yep. by him and yep. so it's really important for us to understand that in our context because if i'm being really honest the message of jesus christ is not very threatening to people nowadays it actually is used to back up one's political party yes instead of being a threat to it yes. and that is a really important thing to understand and a really important distinction to be made mm. because i think we may have it wrong a little bit (laughs) i think you might be right uh but we're gonna get into that a little bit more so alex continue with the crucifixion story yeah so you you see this moment the whole battalion is present in in verse 16 then in verse 17 kind of these famous little jabs and these famous little moments where they clothe him in a purple cloak jesus clothed in a purple cloak and they put a crown of thorns on his head And um, there is uh, no mistaking the likeness of Jesus's execution wardrobe and the likeness of the ceremonial garb. The general was dressed in the triumphal procession. He was wearing this particular attire that included purple. He was wearing armlets and a crown upon his head and holding a branch in his right and wearing purple was actually outlawed for anyone under a particular rank. So mm-hmm. the only other person who would have been allowed to wear purple was probably Pilate. Yeah. So you have somehow these guards in their mocking and in their jest go out and find purple for Jesus to wear. And um, then you have just this bizarre, like, why would they go out looking for a thorn bush 
to to put a crowd like it seems like so much effort just to mock someone yeah again the threat and yet it is yeah um it is really kind of putting on display what was happening in the roman triumphal procession in the extreme mocking of the conquered one so Mm -hmm. kind of the irony which you you will will continue to see is that in their mocking the soldiers are actually declaring the rightful identity of Jesus. Because yeah. in, in verses 18 and 19, they begin the procession um, with jeering and the cheering of soldiers, and they shout, Hail, King of the Jews. In jest and in sarcasm, these soldiers are shouting the truest title of Jesus. Yeah. And what's so interesting about the story is it is because of the subversive nature of Jesus and his kingdom that they think they've won. Like the soldiers think they've won. So like, you know, we've set up this like whole, the triumphal entry, the, you know, Palm Sunday, all of these things. The disciples at this point, we have to, we have to note this. The disciples at this point are thinking Jesus is going to overthrow like the Roman government, or they're at least hoping that he will. And so, you know, we're leading up to this moment. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And then what what happens? Jesus is taken and effectively is killed. And Mm -hmm. so in the disciples' minds, and probably in everybody else's mind, it's like, this did not turn out the way that we thought. This didn't go the way it was supposed to. This, yeah, like the plot got foiled, effectively Mm -hmm. speaking. But in all reality... How cool is it that the plot actually went exactly as planned? The plot was not foiled. Right. In fact, what was happening was Jesus was in in declaring himself as king by dying on a cross. Mm. He knew he would be the ultimate king by then resur- like being resurrected. Yep. And so it's so cool to like think through really, and we've said this before on this podcast and in other teachings, the upside down nature of the kingdom of Jesus, the opposition of the kingdom of Jesus versus the kingdom of this world. In this world, death is considered the enemy, Mm -hmm. but in the kingdom of Jesus, it was the road to life and it was the road to full and utter kingship. So yeah. So touching on that upside downness in the triumphal procession, the whole procession is led by that conquering general or that emperor. And the conquered ones are coming behind and being mocked and jested. In the Jesus story, the, con- the and I'm air quotes, the conquered one, Jesus, is actually leading the conquerors. And the reversal of this is actually that the one who is conquered is actually the victor. Yeah. And so as, you know, in, in verse 20. irony it's so good and there's so much irony in it and I, I think mark is the king of irony mark is yeah. is a masterful writer in this regard and the way he organizes the story um has so much depth to it and and in verse 20 mark includes this detail they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him that's kind of setting up the later detail that they would um, roll for lots for his clothes so it wasn't the purple cloak that they were rolling for it was actually Jesus's clothes and then they led him out to crucify him and so there is this you know this is where the parade begins 
Jesus is Mm -hmm. leading the parade through the streets of Jerusalem towards Golgotha. And it's a long procession of Jesus being forced to carry his cross. And it also speaks to the, the physical state. He was just exhausted from a brutal, brutal beating. And so he, he carries his cross as far as possible. And they, they need someone to help him. And obviously the guards, uninterested in helping him, recruit Simon of Cyrene, who is coming from an outside country and is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So I found this detail actually particularly interesting in that Simon's sons may have later been known to the church community. So they were saying, hey, look whose dad showed up because everybody probably knew um, Alex, Alexander and Rufus. So they were kind of saying, hey, look at where he shows up in the story. And this is the most... Like the people who were reading were it reading afterwards. reading it after, yeah. 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 And so in, dis- in depictions of the triumphal, procession there is always a sacrificial bull that is escorted by the one who carries a double-bladed like axe. in the culture of the roman empire so the, yeah. yeah so in the roman empire there was a, a sacrifice associated with it and so someone would uh, escort the bull which was the sacrifice in and they would always carry a double-bladed axe or said a more provocative way the sacrifice is escorted by one who carries the means of their execution so in this case, Simon takes on the role of the one carrying the means of execution next to the sacrifice, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is then depicted as this sacrifice being ex- escorted by the means of his execution. Which harkens back images to the Israelites and yep. how they sacrifice yep. animals and all that. Yep. So, yep. yeah, yep. really cool parallels then there. In t- verses 23 and 24... Um, the triumphal procession, so in the Roman context, the triumphator was offered a cup of wine, which he would refuse. He would then take the cup and pour it on the altar or occasionally the bull signifying blood. So Jesus is offered wine yeah. mixed with myrrh. He would refuse he it. it. Yeah. And obviously there are these clear parallels happening and then um, they mentioned the time, it was the third hour when they crucified him, which scholars rightfully think that that would be about the time that the Roman triumphal procession would always begin. They would need a few moments of daylight to prepare before it would begin. And then um, two last details. So there's an ins- inscription above Jesus that read, you know, the king of the Jews. So following the mockery in which they're yelling, you know, hail king of the Jews, we see the same inscription above Jesus' head. In the Roman triumphal, the conquered ones would oftentimes have signs hung around their neck mocking them. So it was most most of this parade was around the idea of mocking those who you conquer. Oh, so those that they had conquered were in would, the procession, procession, procession yes. and had those signs They had on these them. signs. And yeah. so likewise, Jesus is right now being depicted as the conquered one. And yet, at the same time, the truest identity of Jesus is being declared. Um, He's actually being lifted up with a title above his head, the King of the Jews. And then finally, kind of the the specification of the number and placement of those crucified with Jesus. In the Roman triumphal, oftentimes it was the emperor, his conquering general, and possibly his son. So him standing in the middle, 
and someone to his left, someone to his right. And what do we see when Jesus is literally lifted up? His, his cross is lifted up above people's heads. There's someone to his left and someone to his right. Not yeah. a conquering general, not his royal blood, but two thieves. Yeah. And so in so many ways, it's this scandalous story that Jesus wasn't crowned by conquering or by overwhelming shows of violence, but he allowed himself to become a victim of the human government. He was harassed and lynched and ultimately executed. And it was in those means that he became king of the cosmos. Yeah, it's uh, really cool to just think through what we're kind of doing right now is highlighting all these parallels between the politic of Jesus's day and then what Jesus himself did. And so we're kind of highlighting all of these different parallels yeah. as we're, we're talking here, you know, parallels all the way from the, the procession into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, all the way through his procession to the cross yeah. Yeah. and then his ultimate death. So it's really cool to see how Jesus was using the rituals and the traditions of mm. the Roman government to like yeah. flipping them on their head to ultimately declare himself as like the ultimate king. Yes. And and Mark is genius in how he's organizing it. In in verse one, he declares, this is the story of the son of God. And then in 15 verse 39, we hear the soldier who says, truly this man was the son of God. So the very first time we hear of it is in verse one. The son of God is not used again until verse 39 of chapter 15 and it's in this moment that the culmination of mark's gospel he's offering a critique of of power and man humanity's hubris and our pride and in so so many ways jesus is offering this alternative mm. picture yeah. it's a divine critique of all the roman emperors who would declare themselves king yeah. or to declare themselves god yeah. he was the son yeah. of god So ultimately, like what we're getting at here is the Roman government would not have crucified Jesus if they did not see him as a threat. So the politic of that day was threatened by the person of Jesus. And as I referenced earlier, for some reason in our current cultural moment, the person of Jesus has not threatened our politic, Mm. but it needs to. Yep. And it should. And that's what the Bible, in fact, illustrates and instructs us to do. So moving forward as we kind of wrap up here, um, Alex, you know, what does it look like for us to, in a sense, pledge allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus? Like when I think about us pledging allegiance to America, there's a ritual in that. There's something that's done in both word and in deed. Um, what does it look like in like physical form, physical manifestation? What does it look like in both Mm. word and deed to pledge allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus? And because again, we've got, there has to be, something has to be different from what we're currently doing right now. Currently our (laughs) allegiance to Jesus just does not look that much different than our political allegiance. And as we've learned today, it has to. So what does that really look like? What does it look like to really pledge allegiance to Jesus? Yeah, as, as in Mark's narrative, Jesus is set against the rulers who govern with violence, cruelty, and greed. And as the true, true ruler, he is the one who, who governs with love, gentleness, and generosity. Therefore, those who pledge our allegiance to him and his kingdom 
we we set our politic in his way against the kingdoms of the world. And so think about, you know, Jesus is the one who encounters the poor, the disenfranchised, the downcast, the ill, the broken in body, and they're all utterly transformed by encounters with him. He's the, the Jesus who challenges social structures. He says, instead of blessed are the rich, blessed are the wealthy, blessed are the powerful, yeah. he says blessed are the poor. Uh, you know, his teachings on service and love, he teaches that those who are full of mercy, purity, and peace will see God. He doesn't talk about those who are willing to hustle the hardest. He doesn't talk about those who are willing to sell their soul for the next advance. He's not talking about those who can get highest in the corporate ladder. He's talking about those who will humble themselves. Jesus talks about um, reconciliation versus retaliation that he teaches us to let go of the anger we harbor, the outrage we have against our neighbor, and rather to choose love over resentment. In so many ways, Jesus's politic, the way in which he, he calls his people to interact with their neighbor, with their family, with their enemy, is counter to the norms of the human empires. Mm -hmm. And so in so many ways, he is establishing a kingdom so unlike those of of this earth and yeah. those we're familiar with. Yeah. And so I think the task as Jesus followers is to learn what it is to live as citizens of that new kingdom. Yeah. And let us not be too hubristic. Like I think the argument, some people may say like, Oh, well the Roman government was so much more evil than the American government oh, is no. today. And <laughs> although there might be like some you know, allowances that can be made, you we, know, here and there. We've been born in the bloodiest, most violent yes, era of human history. So yeah. make no mistake, the Romans aren't some, you know, aberration of evil. Yeah. The Babylon was not some aberration of evil that, you know, no longer exists. We live and we exist in the most violent and bloody his like moment yeah. in history. And, uh, yeah, that should, should tell us something about yeah. who we should align yeah. ourselves with. And we may think like, oh, we're more evolved and we're more this and we're more that. And though, and although like our context has changed, although our access to information has changed, all of those things have changed. There are a lot of things that remain the same. Mm -hmm. And so, um, lest we think that we are, oh, so much better than the Romans as Americans, <laughs> Yeah. let's uh reorient our framework yeah. so if we any, could probably spend a lot of time yeah, on that if but. anything america is just a new version of the roman government yeah yeah so that means that we as peoples as followers of jesus that align with his kingdom must look and act different um, than that of the world and so we spent quite a bit of time in all of these podcasts that you've heard thus far and we will continue in kind of talking through what that looks like but i think we've set up a really good framework um, for kind of what what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of Jesus and to align with him and how we do that in word and deed, I think must mimic, as you were saying, Alex, mm -hmm. so much of what the Sermon on the Mount tells us um, in scripture that Jesus kind of instructs us. But practically speaking, um, really does 
reveal itself in several of the ways that we've already talked about in this podcast previously and continue uh, will continue to do so um really really quick i know we're over on what our normal time is um this has just been too much fun to talk about there's so much here we could probably spend so many podcasts on that if you are curious you're like i want to learn like i want to learn a little bit more about this like i'm so unfamiliar with the political nature of the biblical text alex what are some resources that people can read um to kind of help further their understanding so for the understanding of the triumphal procession i look to t.e smith's um, he has an article called Mark 15, 16 through 32. The What's that last name again? Can you say that for us? T.E. Schmidt. Schmidt. Okay. Schmidt. So um, that one is specifically on kind of the content we talked through on more general kind of politics. Um, Jesus, the day the revolution began by N.T. Wright. It's kind of gives a, a dive into this a little bit. Um, the Politics of Jesus by John Yoder. Um, Scandalous Witness by Lee Camp is kind of a commentary on um, Christianity and politics of today, which is really good. And then finally, uh, Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd um, does exactly what it says it does. It it suggests (laughs) that the American politic or the American government is not as Christian as what some people claim it is. Yeah, it's what I was talking about earlier, kind of divorcing... Yes. The, the the kingdom of Jesus from the kingdom of this world and kind yeah. of highlighting that. So thanks so much for joining us for this conversation today. Um, if you want to dialogue more with us on um, what this looks like, feel free to shoot us a message on Instagram or if you're part of our church community, uh, text one of us. We'd love to talk a little bit more about the political nature of Jesus's kingdom. Until next time, we will see you later. Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.